0: Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacons editor-in-chief, Cyril McGleigo. Twice a month we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Sue Ann DeVito is a Bucks County mother, grandmother, and political activist. Her witnessing has included three trips to the border to see firsthand the humanitarian crises exacerbated by policy failures of Republican and Democratic administrations alike. She most recently returned from a solidarity delegation sponsored by Witness at the Border called A Journey for Justice, A Border Pilgrimage. Sue Ann, thanks for joining us and kicking off the first episode of the Bucks County Beacon's new podcast, The Signal.
1: Well, thank you, Cyril. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and congratulations on the podcast. Thank you for shining a spotlight on this very serious issue.
0: To start, can you just explain to listeners how you got involved with advocacy and activism and more specifically with immigrant solidarity work?
1: So it was after the 2016 election, um, I think a lot of us were out of sorts with what to do and had a lot of frustration. As we moved into 2017, I was trying to figure out where I could channel my energy. And I sat in March, the beginning of March of 2017, in a church in Ben Salem and listened to somebody talk about Know Your Rights trainings um, church was full of about a hundred people, most of whom looked just like me, and it occurred to me that the people who needed to know their rights were actually not in the room. And at the time, I had owned a landscaping business, and I realized there was an opportunity to share this information out with people I knew who would be impacted by these um, pretty hard policies that were in place. and the very next morning, four community members on their way to work were stopped and detained by ICE in Doylestown. So that's that's where it all started. Uh, and then a, a group of us f- formed, and at the time we were concerned about how to make sure, I mean I always thought about the children, right? So how, if people go to work and they don't come home, what happens to their children? Their children have no idea, there's no protections. We may not be able to stop them from getting detained, but how do we help them have the information and the tools to protect their children? So we organized uh, a brunch with the community and at that point things were so tense in the community that only four people, and these are people I knew, Only four people came because they were so afraid of getting detained. And during the course of that brunch, we heard from people who were in, who had gone to attorneys. They charged them $10,000 in cash and were unable to do anything for them. So we immediately realized the need to not only communicate with the community about their rights. Um it was also important to help find legitimate, reputable representation for them. And then we c- began by crowdsourcing funds from the community to give out $500 grants to people so they could retain immediate representation, which is crud- very crucial when you're being deported. Um, and It's grown, our our organization has grown from there. It all started as a very grassroots effort.
0: Great. And and that's what led you to be part of Immigrant Rights Action, um, which is uh, Mm -hmm. an organization we actually showcased um, on the Bucks County Beacon with an article by Catherine Caruso. Um, Can you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about the delegation that you went on and the itinerary that you participated in?
1: Sure. Um, so I guess it goes back again when—from the previous administration when they started putting children in cages, uh, and I just needed to see for myself what was going on because there was so much confusion in the news. So. In 2020, I was able to get to the border. Um, I crossed in California in January, and then in 2020, I spent a week crossing back and forth between Brownsville and Matamoros. I, shortly after I returned, I was unable to go back because COVID shut everything down. And when I was at the border in 2020, I met Witness at the Border, and they are an organization led by a man who's kind of like-minded. He had never done advocacy before, but after watching things on the news, he got up one day and went to Texas and drove to a child detention center and parked in a driveway to observe what was going on. So witnessing is like the subversive act of seeing. One of the things I've discovered along the way is that immigration, it doesn't matter what it, who's, who's in charge, right? It doesn't matter whether it's Democrats or it's Republicans, it's a failed system. And for me, it was really important to see what was going on now. So when WITNESS um, organized the journey for justice along the southern border, it was a perfect opportunity for me to go and see, with my own eyes, what is happening now under a new administration. Unfortunately, I what I saw was more disturbing than what I saw previously.
0: Well, well tell me about that. I mean, can you describe you know both the border militarization as well as the human costs and the you know, the humanitarian crises um, that you both witnessed and learned about on your delegation?
1: Yeah. um, When I first got back there, I went over to Matamoros, which is the exact spot I had left in 2020. And at the time in 2020, when I was there, there were all sorts of NGOs in place uh, providing there were Doctors Without Borders had a tent there, World Central Kitchen was providing food, there was another nonprofit that had uh, water filtration systems, and the Mexican government was providing a ton of porta-potties. But when I went back this time, the thing that changed is Title 42. Uh, title, While well, the previous administration had a weight in Mexico policy, to seek asylum, which was the first time that's ever been done in history. They also implemented Title 42, which is a policy that excludes people from coming into our country because of COVID restrictions, uh, which is kind of weird because most of us have removed COVID restrictions, right? So going over this time, all of the previous amenities, if you might, if you will, were gone. But as we walked through the camp with somebody who was processing Title 42, exceptions, meaning if they filed, as they waited in Mexico, as if they filed an exception to the Title 42, there is a chance for them to come across. Within minutes, we were surrounded by about 2,000 people and. But I looked around and I realized they were here and none of the amenities were there. So there was one gentleman that had a uh, cut on his ankle, and he had to figure out it was really infected. It had been infected for weeks. He had to figure out whether to get and spend money on antibiotics or or get food for his child. Um, As you walk down to the riverbank, the smell was overwhelming, and I realized that these wonderful people were being further dehumanized by having to go to the bathroom on the riverside. Uh, People were left to wash their clothes in the river. You could see where they were hanging them to dry, and they, they were left very exposed to the elements because they had no shelter and they weren't allowed by the Mexican government at that time to even put um, a tarp over their heads to protect them from the elements. But it's not just the elements you have to worry about in Mexico. These areas that I was in are, if you go to the the state travel website, there's all sorts of warnings about the high rate of kidnapping, crime, death, rape. And in fact, a lot of our government employees are forbidden to travel into them. So we're asking them to stay in very unsafe circumstances. When I came back over to the American side, I could see people that were being returned to Mexico who tried to enter our country and were being sent back. And they had, um, they had no shoelaces on because When you present yourself at the border, the first thing that Customs and Border Patrol does is it removes your shoelaces, which they don't return, and then it marks them as targets for the cartel if they're released back into Mexico, and it marks them as targets for gang activity if they're left at a bus station for a couple nights in a row. Um, the the women that I spoke with there on the Mexican side, most of them were extremely traumatized. They had shared different stories about their journey along the way, and having to walk over dead bodies, for example, or the treatment by the government when they entered into Mexico. And there's nobody there. <laughs> On top of the fact that there's nobody there to help them with any of their needs, there's also a lack of help or compassion around the mental health for the trauma that they've all incurred. So they've incurred trauma in their country that has forced them to leave. They've incurred trauma along the way. And then we're traumatizing them again when they get here. And in El Paso, what I saw was that it was, probably, it, was it was around 8.39 o'clock at night, and we got a call as I got into El Paso that people had been dropped off at the bus terminal. And when I got there, it was a city I had never been in before, and there was a, at least 50 to a hundred people in different spots that had been dropped off from the detention center, but the bus station wasn't open. And some of the the people dropped off at the bus station actually had plane tickets. But if you're in a city that you don't know with no means because everything's been taken or stolen from you, it's a little hard to find out where the airport is. Um, Again, they don't have electricity because they don't have shelter where they're staying. So even things like having a cell phone charged to be able to communicate with people can be a challenge. We ran into one gentleman who had been separated from his wife when they came through and he couldn't find her because his cell phone was dead. Somebody had stolen the cord. And we, I walked around, I saw a man standing next to a, in El Paso, and I saw a man standing next to a box on the street. And I heard a woman crying, and I looked back and I realized there were two women inside the box trying to stay warm, and he was standing guard to protect them. Nobody should have to live like that. Um, As far as the militarization, I definitely wasn't in Pennsylvania anymore. In the ten nights that I was there I saw two blimps. I went through three or four checkpoints, which if you haven't been through one before, within a hundred miles of the border, you can be stopped at any time and have to prove your citizenship. So when you're driving along a highway, you suddenly have to go through this checkpoint and they stop you and they ask you to prove your citizenship, want to know where you're going, who you're going with, which is really unusual for me as an American citizen. I can't imagine how it impacts the communities that live there. And the odder part is like, this is in areas where there's nothing around for miles and miles and miles. I mean, it's pretty open land there. So, I'm um, it didn't seem, I don't understand the spend of it. Uh, when I was in When we were driving along outside of Madame Morris, I mean, it was like every quarter mile there was some kind of militarized vehicle at the corner, whether it was the Texas State Police, the local police, sheriff departments, National Guard, Customs and Border Patrol. I've never seen so much militarization ever. They have And the weirder part was, I actually felt safer with the the migrants, in the migrant that were over in Matamoros, than I did around all of these armed officers. There was one point we were at Eagle Pass, which is another uh, border crossing, and as we there's a golf course that that kind of backs up to the river, so you can go down to the river. And in the river are boats with militarized people that are in the water waiting for people who are wading into the water. Now, the people wading into the water, you can almost see the fear, like they, it was a really extraordinary experience to watch them trying to figure out if they should try to get across. They didn't want to go back, but they didn't know what to do. And this one couple was just kind of frozen in time, it seemed like.
0: Were the folks in the boats law enforcement or were they like yes. militia types?
1: No, the, the folks in the boats were um, law enforcement. But if you could have, it, it's hard to explain, but there was just so many of them to not so many people that were coming across. Again, most people are waiting on the other side trying to do it the right way i did not witness storms of people trying to cross the water and then also there was the national guard and i was just struck about how young these kids are with these military um, assault rifles like strapped to them and they were more terrified of talking to us than we were to them so kind of scary that we even have our children in those positions there's, there we did. Uh, there was a place near Del Rio where we traveled the river, and it was an unusual place because you know uh, politicians love to talk about this wall-to-wall border wall that they want a border, and if people actually saw the border. I don't think that they'd feel that way, or they would realize how absurd the statement even is in the first place. So one of the things we did was look at what the border wall looked like in different places. When we were in Del Rio looking at it, it was about an eight, nine mile drive, and it kind of had a loop around and come back out. When we did that, we were followed by the sheriff. There was a man that came out on his property and was filming us with one hand and he had his hand on his gun with the other. We were also followed by a truckload of militia and nobody stopped the militia.
0: Of course not. Right?
1: So, like, who were we tracking? It makes no sense.
0: So... Let's pivot to policy for a second. I mean, do you have any ideas about what a more humane and just, um, you know, immigration reform and policy that actually prioritizes human rights looks like?
1: Well, I think that, number one, I think that there's a lot of talk about what we can't do and what we can't agree on. And I think I would challenge anybody to look into the eyes of the people I looked into and talk to them. These people are not. When they say that people are coming here for a better life, it's not that they want a job that makes more money. They actually just want to live. They want their kids to live. So I think that if we could develop and support robust communication and planning between federal, state, government, um, and the and the communities that are already supporting immigrants. It would just make such a difference. Um, and if we could create a non-custodial, humanitarian reception at the border, there's no reason, I I just, I can't wrap my brains around why we need to take people's shoelaces. Like, literally, these people are fighting for their lives. They're not a suicide risk. Okay, if you think they're a suicide risk, or, like, they turned themselves in, so they're not a threat. So, if we have to take their shoelaces, why can't we give them a pair of shoelaces back? It doesn't make any sense, but it's not just that, it's inconsistent. The implementation of policies is different in different locations, and we had somebody who came from the border to Bucks County, and he had to burn all of his belongings in a barrel, including his glasses. Why are we taking people's glasses?
0: That's sick, actually.
1: He didn't have a toothbrush. He was in a detention... And and then again, here he is. He's seeking asylum. He's put in a detention center for five days where he got food poisoning and no medical attention. And then he was transferred to stay in a hotel room for a three-day waiting period until his cousin was able to get him a plane ticket. He was not permitted, even though he was approved to enter our country and seek asylum, he was not permitted to go get toothpaste. Once he got on the plane, he's free to do whatever. Why is it we had to make him go through all of that? Why is it we are so judgmental in who is married and who isn't? A lot of times people's paperwork is stolen on their way here. The one gentleman I met in Morris, his wife was able to enter the country, but he wasn't because they didn't consider them a couple, and he's showing me his wedding pictures. So that doesn't make any sense to me. There's got to be a more effective method to welcome people with dignity, and there should be more communication. For example, if people are in detention centers, because that's where they're going to process them. Not that I think they should be in a detention center in the first place, I think there should be just a more humane system to to process people. But if you have people in a facility, and you do separate them, if you're in a hospital, you get like a band to identify you. Why can't we, I, you know, there was another gentleman in the streets of El Paso sobbing because he was separated from his wife and four children and nobody when they released him and dumped him in the streets of el paso told him where his wife and his four children were. he didn't have a phone how, how how does he have any method of finding his family
0: that's actually heartbreaking.
1: and this is these are just a couple of stories right and i was there for just a small amount of time um i do want to note though some things have changed a little bit because it's an ever fluid situation there um, for example, in Mexico, in Matamoros, after the temperatures dropped to 26 degrees in December, the government did allow people to start putting up tents. But shortly after they start let people start putting up tents, they also um, emptied out the three shelters.
0: Well, Sue Ann, why should people in Bucks County not only be concerned but engaged with what's happening at the border, and? You know, how does what happens thousands of miles away there impact us locally?
1: Well, number one, I I just think that who we are as a nation and who we are as a people is how we treat the most vulnerable of us, right? And our nation was built on immigrants. None of us, well, most of us, should I say, aren't from here originally. None of our families um, so who are we to, to suddenly impose this on others? I think it, we've always been a, mod, you know, it's always been a vision that we were a beacon of light for others. So I think that it kind of defines us as a nation when we're not treating people very well. And then how it pertains to us locally is a lot of people are coming in to our community and it's important to know I think that we as a community can welcome the people who come in with dignity and respect and be aware of the trauma that they have struggled with along the way and engage with organizations locally that are supportive of their needs
0: and finally How can people get involved both locally and nationally with immigrant solidarity work and progressive policy advocacy?
1: That's a great question. So um, for people that are local to this area, uh, in Bucks County, you can go on our website, immigrantrightsaction.org. You can sign up for our newsletter, which will talk about different events um, we th- we have uh, committees that work on legislative advocacy. As a matter of fact, we just had meetings with two Congress people in the past two weeks, and we tomorrow we have a meeting with two senators. Uh, so we're very active in asking for these humane policy changes. There is also a group called Pennsylvania Immigrant and Citizenship Coalition. Its uh, acronym is PICC. And they are an umbrella organization for a variety of immigrant rights organizations throughout the area. And then what was the last question? Did I hit them all?
0: It it was just about both getting involved with immigrant solidarity and and progressive policy uh, advocacy.
1: Yeah, I I think that both of those avenues will uh, get you to be involved. And certainly anybody can always reach out to me directly, and I'm happy to uh, connect you. Witness at the Border also has an active Facebook page, so there's a lot of conversations on there about what's happening at the border, and there's a lot of postings about vital policy changes, Uh, especially ones that we want to push back against as well as what we want to advocate for and actual issues that are happening around this subject.
0: Well, thanks so much, Sue Ann. Um, Thanks for the work you're doing, and thanks for joining us and just letting Bucks County know what's happening at the border and what they can do to get involved. So thank you.
1: Thank you, and thank you for all who were listening.
0: This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril Micheleko, Editor-in-Chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. And join us for our next episode when I'll talk to Maurice Cunningham about his new report, Merchants of Deception, Parent Props and Their Funders. Merchants of Deception pulls back the veil on the right-wing players, their tactics, and the funders... Attacking public education. The signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Radio Chicken Media. Intro outro music by Maf Ed Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission.